Good morning and welcome to The Hair Affair. This is your host, Christine, and thank you so much for joining me today. We are starting the special series for the rest of the week on Saturday. It is Veterans Day, so we are. I'm going to be honoring women veterans. And today will be my first interview with my own mom, who served in the United States Army. So make sure that you have a craft of coffee this time and bring it to the beauty lounge and we will get this Veterans Day special rolling. So for our first episode today, I wanted to share a little bit with you about women in the military. And I have a small article here that I would like to read from or read to you uh, that I got from the History of Women in the U.S. United States Service Organization. From the battlefields of the American Revolution to the deserts of Kuwait, Women have been serving in the military in one form or another for more than 200 years. They have had to overcome decades of obstacles to get where they are today, serving in greater numbers in combat roles and in leadership positions all around the world. Here is a look at the history of women in the military, how their roles have changed over the years, and how the USO has supported them since our founding in the organization of 1941. Although women were not always permitted to enlist in the U.S. armed forces, many still found ways to serve their nation. During the Revolutionary War, as colonial militias armed themselves and joined George Washington's Continental Army, many of these soldiers' wives, sisters, daughters, and mothers went with them. These women traveled alongside the Continental Army, where they boosted morale, as well as mended clothes, tended to wounds, forged for food, cooked and cleaned both laundry and cannons. Some women found ways to join the fight for independence. Margaret Corbin, for example, disguised herself as a man and traveled with her husband to the front lines of the Battle of Fort Washington, where she helped him load his cannon. When her husband was shot by the enemy fire, Corbin carried on fighting. Even after being shot three times, she was given a military pension in acknowledgement of her efforts and years after her death was reburied at West Point with full military honors. However, women's roles in the military became even more crucial during the Civil War as the support expanded. During the Civil War, nearly 20,000 women lent their skills and efforts in everything from growing crops to feed Union troops to cooking in army camps. Other tasks include sewing, laundered uniforms, and blankets and organizing donations through door-to-door fundraising campaigns. Notably, it was during the Civil War that women began to serve as nurses on a much larger and more official scale. Approximately 3,000 women served as nurses for the Union Army during the war. Legendary nurse and founder of the Red Cross, Clara Barton, even received a special military pass that permitted her to travel directly onto the battlefield where she drove her medical wagon straight into the fray to tend to wounded soldiers. Fellow trailblazer Dorothea Dix was even appointed superintendent of the United States Army Nurses for the Union Army, leading her own army of nurses over the course of the war. Dix is remembered for pushing her high standards of behavior and training among her nurses, as well as providing ample opportunities for female nurses working in support of the military. Meanwhile, some women even marched on the battlefields. Historians estimate that about 1,000 women disguised themselves as men and fought on both sides of the Civil War. In the 20th century, changed everything for women in the military. At the onset of the United States entry into World War I in April 1917, the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, formerly established in 1901, had officially been in existence for less than 20 years 
and only had 403 nurses in its active duty ranks. By June 1918, just over a year later, there were more than 3,000 American nurses deployed to British-operated hospitals in France. These nurses often worked in dangerous conditions near the front lines, caring for service members and, and civilians alike, and ensuring the health and safety of Allied troops. However, World War I is also notable because it was the first time women did not yet have the right to vote, were allowed to openly serve in the U.S. military. With large numbers of American men being sent to war overseas, the armed forces and the U.S. Navy in particular needed stateside replacements for the roles that were left behind after finding a loophole in a naval act that would allow women to serve in non-commissioned officer and non-combat roles. The Navy enlisted its first yeomanats. Around 12,000 women served in the rank of yeoman, mostly working clerical duties as well as telephone and radio operators and translators. Meanwhile, the U.S. Army Signal Corps enlisted women to work as telephone and switchboard operators. These women, nicknamed the Hello Girls, often worked very close to the front lines in France. They would not be recognized for their high-pressure work or their status as veterans until decades later in 1979. Then, only a few years after the war to end all wars, World War II broke out and the women's roles continued to evolve with the rest of society. World War II created an unprecedented need for service members. As more than 16 million Americans stepped up to serve on the front lines, the majority of those men, being the U.S. military, was left with many non-combat roles that needed to be filled. So the women of the United States stepped up too, and for the first time in history, all branches of the military enlisted women in their ranks. In total, nearly 350 American women served in uniform during World War II. These women took on non-combat roles in order to free up more men to fight. They continued to work clerical jobs as they did during World War I, but they also drove vehicles, repaired airplanes, worked in laboratories, and cryptology, served as radio and telephone operators, rigged parachutes, test flew planes, and even trained their male counterparts in air combat tactics. Women also served as nurses. 57,000 served in the Army Nurse Corps and 11,000 in the Navy Nurse Corps, and these roles were not without risk. Many of these women worked right on the front lines and came under enemy fire, and even some won combat decorations. Army Colonel Ruby Bradley, a nurse in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, was kept prisoner at the internment camp in the Philippines for 37 months, during which she remained steadfast in her calling as a nurse. She performed 230 major surgeries and delivered 13 babies during her time as a prisoner of war, even under harsh conditions. In total, 432 women were killed in the line of service during World War II and 88 were taken as prisoners of war. True to societal norms at the time, all branches emphasized the expectations of femininity with the ranks of women in the military throughout the war. Uniforms included skirts, no slacks, and nail polish. Makeup and feminine hairstyles were not only allowed but encouraged. But beyond the focus of femininity, these women were finally recognized as vital enlisted members of the armed forces. They risked their lives and were an integral to American success in the war. And through it all, they faced challenges in navigating their new roles and overcoming discrimination in a male-dominated arena. After the war, many of these women would return home, hoping to continue their military career only to find themselves pushed out of their roles so that the men returning from war could have them. 
Some women would struggle for decades to obtain veteran status or benefits for their service during World War II. But because of their perseverance and dedication to service throughout the war, they helped pave the way for women and military who would come after them. In 1948, three years after the end of World War II, President Harry S. Truman signed the Women's Armed Service Integration Act into law, officially allowing women to serve as full, permanent members of all branches of the, of the armed forces. However, this was not a guarantee of equal opportunity. The act actually restricted the number of women who could serve to only 2% of each branch, and they also limited how many women could become officers. Additionally, female service members could be automatically discharged if they became pregnant and they were unable to command men or serve in combat positions. But regardless of the obstacles that remained in female service members' paths, the Women's Armed Service Integration Act was still a step toward progress for women in the military. One month after the act's passing, President Truman issued the integration of the Armed Forces Executive Order, desegregating the military and ensuring that black women could now serve equally in all branches of the military as well. And serve they did. Just two years later, the Korean War broke out and 120,000 women could go on to serve in active duty positions from 1950 to 1953. Although they could not serve in combat, they undertook new roles such as military police officers or engineers. Military nurses also continued to play a critical role during that time. Mobile Army Surgical Hospitals, or MASH, were heavily used during the Korean War providing fully functioning hospitals in combat zones, where many nurses worked. Just a few years later, in the Vietnam War, these nurses would be called to the front lines once again. Approximately 11,000 women were stationed in Vietnam during the nearly 20-year war, and 90% of them were nurses in the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Notably, most volunteered to go. During the Vietnam War, other female service members worked as air traffic controllers, intelligence officers, and clerks, both at home and in Vietnam. In 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson opened promotions for women in general and flag ranks, and in 1972, women allowed to command units that included men. The U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War came to a close in 1973, and two years later, the Pentagon announced that pregnant women could remain in the military. At the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, there were a lot of firsts for women in the military. The first woman to become a Navy fighter pilot, the first female four-star general in the Army, and the first female rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard, among others. There was even the first Silver Star awarded to a female soldier since World War II. Army Sergeant Lee Ann Hester was awarded the Military Medal in recognition of her brave actions during an enemy ambush on her supply convoy in Iraq in 2005. She is also the first woman ever to receive the Silver Star for direct combat action. But it was not just the first that were impressive in these more recent years. As more women broke through the barriers and established themselves as capable service members working in defense of the nation, the list of firsts slowly became less noteworthy in comparison to the sheer number of women serving, as well as their significant contributions to their respective branches. In the Gulf War from just 1990 to 91, more than 40,000 women deployed to combat zones, although they still could not technically serve in direct combat roles or assignments. In 1994, President Bill Clinton rescinded the risk rule, essentially allowing women to serve in all positions in the military except for direct ground combat roles. 
This allowed for many more women to still engage in combat as avi aviators, sailors, Air Force personnel, and other roles. Then in 2013, the Defense Secretary, Leon Panetta, announced that the ban on women in combat would be lifted entirely and that female service members would be allowed to serve in direct ground combat roles. In 2015, this was put into action. The historic change opened up hundreds of thousands of jobs for women in the military and essentially ensured that as long as female service members completed the necessary training and requirements, they could now serve in almost any role in the U.S. Armed Forces. Since the opening of combat positions to women, several female service members have trained to step into these new roles. Over the past seven years, a hundred women have graduated from the Army's Ranger School and others have successfully completed Navy SEAL officer assessment and selection, proving their capabilities in even the most rigorous and challenging of assignments. Women continue to make history in the military today, pushing boundaries and taking on more roles and more prestigious roles than ever before. More than 300,000 women have served in Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11. More than 9,000 have earned combat action badges, and today, women make up 16% of our nation's armed forces, serving in every branch of the U.S. military. Well, welcome to the program today, and this is our first segment of my special series honoring women veterans and today is a very special day i have my mother in the studio with me and i would love to introduce her and her name is debbie hi mom hi sweetie how are you today i'm fine how are you i'm i'm good thank you for doing this for me today oh absolutely to let our listeners know what what's going on for you um you're starting you're, you're doing a jump start to the series today, and I picked today especially because it is your birthday. So happy birthday. Why, thank you. For our listeners out there, my mom was in the Army. I just thought I would start there. And if you would just want to talk about all the good stuff, how, what, when, why, when you first joined? Well, I've always wanted to join the service as far back as the seventh, eighth grade. Being patriotic, kind of like the uniform, so they were kind of sweet. I went down and took the test at the AFI station on a Monday. Tuesday, I took the physical. Wednesday, nothing special happened that day. Thursday was my birthday, and Friday, I left for basic training, Fort Anniston, Alabama. Alabama. Yes. So from Indiana straight to Alabama. Now you were just right out of high school. Actually, I just turned 19. Oh, you just turned 19. Okay. So I was a year out. So after you went through your basic training in Alabama, mm -hmm. where did you go from there? I went from Alabama to South Carolina, to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Okay. for my AIT or advanced individual training um, and I wanted to be a clerk. Now at the AFI station and Army Security Agency recruiter talked to me and asked me if I would like to go to school and learn Chinese Mandarin or Arabic or Russian and I said no. <laughs> That's a year-long, intense, very intense school. I wanted to be a clerk typist, do office work, and that they guaranteed me. And sure enough, the Army came through, spent a couple of months at Fort Jackson. Fort Jackson, okay. And then so after your AIT, mm -hmm. what happened from there? From there, I got orders. I wanted to go to Germany. And sure enough, they came through, and my orders were for Augsburg, Germany. So here I am, 19 years old. I went home for some leave, and then all by myself, 
flew to Fort Dix, New Jersey, and got on the Mack flight to Frankfurt. Now, we did land in Ireland to refuel. We couldn't get off the plane, but I still count that as being in country. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, went to Frankfurt. Frankfurt, I had some help from some um, NCOs. To help me down at the Frankfurt train station to catch the right train to Augsburg. That is a long ride from northern Germany practically to southern Bavaria. Wow, how long did that take? That probably took four or five hours. By train. By train. And those were the old trains where you had the little cabins or the little places that you can sit, mm -hmm. little room-like. And I had an elderly gentleman sit across from me and spoke to me in perfect English. I haven't seen a lady in uniform since I was a prisoner in World War II and was held in the States. Yeah. I just didn't know how to come back at that. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So what did you guys end up talking about? Mm, not a whole lot. Yeah. He just kind How's of, the weather kind went of thing? back. Yeah, he went back to reading his newspaper and I went back to looking out the window at the beautiful countryside. I guess I never knew that part of the story. Why is it that you had to travel by yourself instead of with your unit? Because as a single person, and not just whack or GI, but you had your orders and just so happens I had a date set that I needed to be there and there was no one else that had to be there by that date that I could travel with. Okay. So I traveled by myself and once I got to Augsburg, they told me there was a telephone bank that I could pick up and call and have someone from one of the concerns pick me up and take me to the WAC barracks. I'm really glad that you had mentioned WACs because I was going to talk a little bit about that. I'm sure there's probably some listeners out there who don't understand WAC or WASP or what was the Coast Guard? Waves, Waves. and spars. Spars, yes. If you could explain to us what, uh, what a WAC is and how long they were active until... Regular Army. Regular Army. WAC stands for Women's Army Corps and they were brought to life back during World War II. And when they were approved, they were called Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. Mm -hmm. And then toward the end of the war, they were, the auxiliary was dropped and they just became the WACs. The WACs up through 1978, and that is when the, they were dissolved and just incorporated into the regular army. Today's gals don't know the WACs ever existed. I don't believe they give any history or tell them about their ladies that come before them and the ones that come before me. Well, and from my understanding and studying and research and just obviously growing up with you, WAX was, okay, not the WAX, but just women being part of the military had gone on ever since revolutionary. There was a couple in the Revolutionary War and uh, also in the Civil War, and I can't recall their names that yes, that they did nurse, they were nursing. Mm -hmm. And then when World War I came around, they had them, well, they manned the switchboards in France. And oh. they had, and the ladies had to speak mm -hmm. French mm -hmm. and the English. And they did that, they uh, sorted mail. The wax up into the late 70s, didn't have much of a choice of what MOS or military occupational specialty was, mostly medical in the medical field, dental field, in office. And it's not up until the last 30, 40 years that they started incorporating into the motor pool and right. some combat. What book is out? Women's Army Corps, 1942-1978. All right, Congresswoman 
Edith Norse Rogers had introduced a bill in the House of Representatives to establish a Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. She proposed a quasi-military organization of 25,000 women to fill clerical jobs that the Army would otherwise give to enlisted men. Interest was shown in doing this by 1941, but her bill languished during the 1941 Congress because they were preoccupied with more pressing issues. So she reintroduced it again in January of 1942, and it again died in Congress. She was also the, the first head of the Women's Army Corps, and at Fort Anniston, Alabama, there was an Edith Norse Rogers museum and we was able to take some time and go through that museum and it was very enlightening at the time and they had a women's army corps museum that used to be at Anniston now it is at Fort Lee Virginia they moved it kind of broke my heart over that the women's army corps was established on 14 May 1942 and the next day President Franklin Roosevelt signed the bill an act to establish the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps became public law 77-554. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes. When you finally arrived to Osberg, what's the first thing you remember? I remember waking up the next day. The next day was Sunday, and bells were playing all around town like church bells. That just fascinated me. I bet that was amazing it, to hear. It that was one. it was amazing to hear and it was absolutely beautiful. Did you have a bunkmate already established? Is this where you met Bev? Yes. When I was assigned to a room, it was a four woman room. Unfortunately I can only remember Bev Lamoureux, that's her married name now. We became best friends. After your first day there, I'm sure you had to report first thing. I had some yeah incoming things that I needed to do. It was shown I lived on the wax barracks was on Sheridan Cassern. And that's what they call bases is concerns. But I worked on flat Cassern. And then there was Reese Cassern. Reese Cassern housed, it was all male and it was all infantry okay. type guys. I was shown how to catch the bus and go to Flat Cassern and do all the paperwork coming in and everything. And I was first assigned to Colonel Free's office. And this was uh, the 502nd Army Security Agency Battalion. And he was the commanding officer. And I was there a few months and then I was reassigned to S2. S2 is in charge of security for the base or the concern. And since the security agency people had clearances, we kept up with their clearances. We were in charge of the military police. And if you wanted to go to Berlin at that time, this is before the wall fell, you needed to take a U.S. air flagged plane into Germany. You could use the train, but you were direly warned not to get off that train anywhere until you get into Berlin because you may not come back. Wow. So we debriefed and then when they left and then briefed them again when they come back. And I also sent clearances to Gablingen, which is where I never got to go in, even though I had the clearance. I had did not have the need to know. That's where they listened in 
radio to the world and okay so let me backtrack us a little bit here you okay so what year did you go through basic i went through basic from november of 73 to january maybe into february 74 because i took a christmas break this is well just after vietnam yes what i felt in the atmosphere over there was i was in an old city and i absolutely loved it i did know guys that were in vietnam they did not talk about it Mm-hmm. as they only talk to each other. I really didn't see the PTSD. I, no one told stories or anything like that at that time. No, it, to me, it was just a normal vibe. It was uh, during the Cold War. I am a Vietnam-era veteran and also a veteran of the Cold War. Interesting times, for sure. It was. It was. We had what we called alerts. And when an alert was called, that means everybody in Germany, all the forces are called to go to their stations. And so living on one concern, working on the other, they always sent a Jeep or something over for us to to ride back in. And uh, that is, we just manned our stations until the alert cleared. But what it was for, if it progressed further than that, then they would start evacuating families in case something happened from Russia, who was our biggest problem at the time. And uh, otherwise, usually about four o'clock in the morning, they would call it off and we would go to the uh, mess hall to have breakfast. <laughs> was there ever a point in time where it would es- like that would escalate and there was like a serious? No, it never did. Um, they just would call it when the balloon goes up. And the balloon goes up. <laughs> That's when uh, the problems would start and people start being um, evacuated. But no, it never happened. Well, what was your favorite? What was your favorite duty that you did, or what was your favorite part of your job? Well, I would do the prepare all the correspondence, and I had an NCO, Sergeant Acock, and then the head of the head of the um, FS two. We had a captain. And I can't remember his name. They were really good guys. I really liked him. There's a, there's a different atmosphere when you're in a foreign country. You know you're in a foreign country, so you're kind of like a minority. It was great. There was It was a little bit more loose as far as when I got married, my captain's wife threw me bridal party. Okay. You wouldn't find that here, I don't think. Kind of like a family. Yes, family, exactly. Well, I know that you have some favorite parts for when you did have some off time. I did go to the Oktoberfest. That was great. Saw the parade with all the beer wagons and the busty ladies in their... <laughs> little dresses and uh, the beautiful horses and the beautiful equipment that they were outfitted on. Loved it. I went twice. Um, The food was good. They had chicken and, of course, the worst. I didn't drink beer, so I never had beer. Never did acquire the taste for it. Right in Germany and couldn't take advantage of it. Well, you don't like warm drinks anyway, and supposedly their beer is warm. Yes, it is. You wouldn't have liked it to begin with. No, and it's funny to go to the Oktoberfest or local fests and see these eight, ten-year-old kids with a liter <laughs> of beer in front of them. <laughs> Completely normal. Normal. Yes, it was. Yeah. What about some of the castles that you got to go see? I got to go see the Walt Disney Castle, also known as New Schwanstein, and it was absolutely beautiful. I was there at least twice. Once I walked up the mountain, and it is on a mountain, 
that was very interesting. Took a while to get up. I was going to say, how long would that take? That that took a while. I don't remember how long, but the next time I went, I went in a carriage and I rode the carriage up the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very beautiful on the inside, absolutely beautiful. You can look out and see a lake, and there's another castle right across from there. It's more of a medieval castle. Okay. Medieval, and I did not get a chance to go to that one. Do you remember the name of that one? Hohenschwanstein, I believe, is the name of that one. Yes, and then I went to another castle, and it was absolutely gorgeous. It had a huge fountain in front of it with a water. It had a grotto. It, it was just absolutely gorgeous, set in the most gorgeous setting. Bavaria is absolutely beautiful. Let's see, I've been to Munich. I saw the Olympic Stadium. Very cool. Also saw for the first time how hops are grown. Very interesting. I did go to Switzerland. Went through Liechtenstein. Never even knew that little tiny country existed. Switzerland? No, Liechtenstein. Oh, Liechtenstein. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? And it, Yes, it, and it's gorgeous. And into Switzerland, and it was beautiful. And most of these places that you went to was all by train, wasn't it? No, this I went with some friends. Okay. Had a car, and so there was three, five of us. That took off. It was on Memorial Day weekend, and we just took off and just went down there and just had fun and saw the beautiful country and back again. Went to Paris. I was in Paris just overnight. I went to Alsace, France, and we went to a beautiful church. We visited a, a museum, and then it was just like, oh, hey, let's just go to France. Let's go to, <laughs> oh, rather, let's just go to Paris. So that was on a whim. Spent one night in Paris, saw the Eiffel Tower. Is it the city of love? The city of love, the city of lights. Yes. Dinner that night, since it wasn't, it was on the fly, was uh, we found a little cafe that was open and had hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But yeah, and saw the Arc de Triomphe, if I pronounced that right. That was interesting. That was fun. I never, always wanted to go to Belgium. And I wanted to go to Holland, but I didn't make it. Didn't quite make that. Did some trips on the weekend, went to a wood factory, went to a crystal factory. I bought a bunch of crystal back with me. Candle factory and porcelain. Where did you get your Hummels? Hummels, I just got those in the PX. Oh, in the PX, okay. Yeah, and they were very cheap at the, well, they were cheap compared to now, but when you're only making like $300 a month and they cost $20, Sure. That was a lot of money. But I did. I bought three of them. I knew someone over there that had the whole collection. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what it's worth today. But wow. Yeah. $300 I was... a month. Sorry, I'm stuck on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're stuck. Yep. And sometimes when it come down to the last week of the month, you were eating in the mess hall three times a day. I'm sure. Let's talk a little fashion because I know that when you were in the army, mm -hmm. your hair was rather long. I've always wondered how in the heck you got your hair to stay up and out of the way like it was supposed to. Well, it was heavy. Yes, I had a lot of hair at that time and it was very heavy very long and I just sort of put it up into a bun on the back then just wore my little cap over it and it stayed it stayed yes it did gave me headaches though it gave me headaches and uh, I think back to when I come back to the states is when I cut it off but yes tell me a little bit about your uniforms I loved the summer uniform they were called cords that was my favorite but I, I can only remember wearing them maybe a half a dozen times the green Class A's, I like those. Those are the ones that you see in the movies, the older movies. 
the little shirts with the black tie, the hat. I love the pot hat. We call it a pot hat. Also, later on, then we were okay that we could wear the beret, so I wore a black beret. And it's a little different than the ones that you see today. It's more of a beret beret, not not like the fashion today or the style today in the services. I wore fatigues to um, my work. But other than that, like your dress uniforms, and I remember seeing a picture, I don't know if you've come across it or anything while you were looking for photos of your skirt after you had washed it and ironed it where it was standing up on its own. That was in basic training. Oh, that was basic. And in basic, we wore a light, baby, soft green, short-sleeved shirt. We wore a lime green pants, shorts, and then we had a wraparound skirt. And then we had tennis shoes. And that was our everyday outfit. Now, I did KP a couple of times, and KP was the older basic training uh, uniforms they give us to wear, which was a long blue skirt and then the blouse to go with it. And one of the gals in basic, she kind of went overboard, tickled the drill sergeant, but she went overboard and starched it, yes, and ironed it to where it stood up by itself. Okay, so that wasn't, that was just kind of a joke, funny, ha-ha, yes, fun yes. thing. Not That wasn't something that was no what you had to... Had to do, no. Right. No. all right so then after your experience in germany and you were sent back to the states where did you go went to good old fort hood in uh texas colleen texas it it had a lot of older buildings and i'm talking older i mean like from the 40s wood buildings and they were in the a huge construction process of tearing a lot of those buildings down and building the new brick barracks and offices and stores and everything that's where we went it's not as bad as everyone says it is it's it's hot in the summer and then in the spring you have the tarantulas that come out all over the place while i was in germany i managed to uh, go on several volks marches and you can go on a 6k or a 12k and you have a little book and when you're done you go to the registration table and they will certify it you get little metal it's about three inches i guess stamp and if you have a cane one of the a wooden cane you oh, can yeah. put it on there tack it on there i remember seeing that yes all the, oh that's what that was that's what it was all okay the and then if you walk six k you got a silver medallion of some sort or 12k it was gold Hmm. a lot of them the guys over there even though we walk 6k they would give us the 12k Uh and i've got some beautiful ones that i treasure and it's very nice you go past castles you go through the forest it's just an absolute walk and it is a very favorite thing for the german people to do on the weekend and i know several guys that would do two on saturday and then do two or three on sunday they were just folks marching fools wow and you would have little rest stops along the way you could have a worst or you could have a coke or you could uh they could have a beer sit and rest and then continue on but it was held in different cities in the south in the south of bavaria when you were doing these walks and you were getting out with the civilian life that's you know in germany yes they were friendly welcoming Yes, there was no there, problem. No problem. No, I didn't. I never once had any German be a bully or mean or make a snide remark or anything. They were all very nice. And if you went out in the villages away from the big city, they 
loved the Americans. Absolutely loved them. So that was good, yes, and we had some good conversations. Okay. You know, you went to New York with me on my last leg of my training for, and we ate at the German restaurant that was right across the street from the hotel I was staying in, or that we were staying in. And I had found that at my previous trip that I had been to New York a month prior to that, a friend from training and I, we went there for dinner one night and I knew I wanted to take you there when you were coming with me. What did you think in comparison as far as food wise? Was it, did it bring you back to your German days or did they have a lot to work with there or work on? I had the Jaeger schnitzel, which is called a hunting steak or a hunting schnitzel. And that was my favorite in Germany. That's whenever we went out, that's what I would have. It was okay. Of course, it wasn't 100% like you would eat in Germany, but it was very good. I would go again inside the building, and it was right on target as far as being German on the inside and the decorations and the leaders and the beer and everything. So, yeah. I, would, I liked it. I liked it on the inside, but every time I've gone there to eat, I always choose to sit outside. Yeah. Um, so next time, or if I ever end up in New York for training in the winter, I obviously will have to sit on the inside because I'm sure I will go back there again because it was one of my favorites, to be honest. But I have never been to Germany, so I can't say if the food was spot on or not, but it was good for me. I love Germany. I love history. So while there, a bunch of us went to Dachau, the concentration camp. Nobody can say that never happened. Mm -hmm. Yes, it did. I was there at least three or four times. And they had the crematorium there. They had mass graves they had an example of the toilet facilities and the barracks. They had a museum. Pictures of Hitler that were in the museum, the Germans would scratch out his face. And then, of course, the museum would have to replace it. But it, it was just a constant circle where they would scratch his face out. And I also saw um, a film that they had. And two of the guys that went with Bev and I, they were German linguists, and so they explained the movie, what was going on. I forget now, but I remember distinctly two little old ladies sitting behind us were watching that, and they were crying. Um, It was very moving, very intense. I'm glad that you said something about that, because I wanted to ask you, but then I decided I would wait to see if that would be something you wanted to bring up, because I know... Um, that you were there, you did see it, and like you said, for somebody to say that it didn't happen, they are—they have no understanding. No understanding. They're not—they're in la-la land somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that with me, or with our listeners. One thing you have not talked about or mentioned yet, and I've been kind of trying to poke you a little bit to see if you would say something, <laughs> is um, maybe I'll just ask you this way. What is one of your favorite sounds? Probably the bells that I heard. Why did was I supposed to say something else? <laughs> that oh. is the wrong answer. <laughs> what was the answer? You always talk about hearing the helicopters over base. Oh, yes. Well, that was more in, in at Fort Hood. Oh, that was Fort Hood. Yeah. What? <laughs> this is funny, but behind the women's barracks on Sheridan Concern, there was the 3rd and 63rd Tank Battalion. 
Those guys are crazy. They were funny, <laughs> but they were crazy. A lot of them were small, so they could get down into the tanks. And one of them did take me down into a tank one time. So that was that was one of my goals that I had set and accomplished. So not, not a lot of helicopters, just uh, the tanks. And we would watch them when they were going up north to uh, do some um, drills or exercises. And they would... Um, be in the tanks and then uh, going out and down to the railroad yard to, to load up. That was fun. So when, and I don't know why this is, maybe I kind of, I know why, but when you talk about the tanks or somebody else, you know, is talking to me about the tanks and everything from when they were in service, the one thing that always pops in my mind that I think of comes from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> and you hear the tanks and they're all squeaking by, you know, like, yes, they do and that's, squeak. And that's what I think of. So when you're saying, when I asked you what your favorite sound was, and first you said the bells, and then you were talking about the tanks, I was wondering, well, is she talking about the squeakiness of the tanks or the tracks on the, t- like, what is she talking about? <laughs> yeah, they do make squeaky noises. Kind of like and on Indiana little, Jones? Yes, and they're kind of <laughs> loud too. And at that time, Beer was kind of allowed in the field. I think everybody just kind of looked away, you know. And I distinctly remember one tank going by. The hatch was open, and the guy was standing there. And as he passed the the whack barracks, he held up this held up this beer. Oh, <laughs> that's like burned forever in my mind. Yeah. Well, he was having a good time apparently. <laughs> he was, but no. When I got to Fort Hood, yes, I love the helicopters. Mm-hmm. I got to ride in one in Germany. I was in Reforger seventy six in Ansbach. And we went up there where the headquarters was for all the units that were in this exercise. And there really wasn't enough work for me. So they sent several of us back and we got to fly back in a helicopter. Very noisy, had to wear earphones, earplugs, what not earplugs, but. And um, I do remember seeing flying over, I didn't have a camera at the time and I wished I did, flying over an airstrip. And it had the Nazi cross on it. And that just kind of blew my mind. Yeah. That was... Did it anger you? Did it no, give it didn't you goosebumps? Anger me. Like what? I was surprised. I was surprised to see it. Because at that time, you didn't see anything like that. Nowhere, no one talked mm-hmm. anything about World War II or Hitler or anything. So I was kind of surprised that it was still there. Obviously, it was a deserted airstrip mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere. But... Yeah, it was it was different. It, it's well, and you kind of being the history buff, you probably went back in your mind like, well, I wonder. Thinking back in time, what was going on here? What the place looked like? The people crawling on the ground and doing their jobs and what kind of planes flew from there? Exactly. I could I can see you going in that direction in your mind because mm-hmm. that's just that's who you are. Yes, that was that was an experience. <laughs> so yes, I got to fly in the helicopter. When I was working with uh, Colonel Freeze in his office, his aide took me out in um, a Jeep, let me drive the Jeep. I rode in a helicopter and I drove a Jeep. That was my three main goals to do. And I got them all done. I got them all done. Mission accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) Check mark. (laughs) Okay. So you were talking about early on when you, you just knew from seventh, eighth, ninth grade that this is what you wanted to do because you were very patriotic. And was it, what what about you as patriotic? Was it just like the flag and understanding what the military did for us or what are the Revolutionary War, the Constitution? Like what, how do you, what part of the patriotism 
led you to enlist in the Army? Well, my grandfather on my dad's side was in World War One. He never really talked to me about it. He did talk a little bit to my brother about it, but I knew that he was in World War One. My dad was old enough for World War II, but he could not go in because he, he only had one eye. He had a glass eye, so he could not enlist. He was very patriotic, and we, and the whole family was. We would mm-hmm. watch war movies on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, thank God for John Wayne, or we wouldn't have won the war. <laughs> <laughs> the movies and the patriotism in me and everything, and I wanted that more than anything. Well, and you truly have pass that on to me yeah ever since I was little I can remember early on being that person and I might have my moments where I regret not enlisting myself I also feel or I hope that I show my patriotism in other ways by not serving my country but supporting my veterans and yes you do you support your veterans you volunteered at the VA when you were 14 yes you volunteered up there on the nursing home Mm -hmm. I think the only bad experience you had was someone come up to you and ask where the bus was the bus bus stop was to go to the war Mm -hmm. and 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 that really wasn't a bad experience for me it was just it it caught me off guard and I did not know how to respond to him so that's why I was like "Uh, I'm not sure sir but go back to your room and I'll find out for you and let you know fast thinking (laughs) and and I you had to be though working at the VA with those old guys and yeah so, but they were definitely, a lot of them were living the war again in their mind, or yes. still. Yes, yes, but they are. You are a member of the VFW Auxiliary. You have whole, every Veterans Day, you give free haircuts. Yes, I would say that. And then by me marrying a, a Navy swab, <laughs> that just probably double reinforced it. <laughs> Probably so. Do you have any last minute thoughts or anything that you want to share with our listeners or maybe with other women veterans um, about My the, experience. your experience or just any, anything that you just want to share that I haven't covered or didn't ask you that you thought maybe you wanted to talk about and we didn't? I would do it again in a New York minute. I have no regrets. The best time of my life was in Germany and enjoyed it very much. Would love to go back, but I know there's been a lot of changes over there since the military has withdrawn a lot of troops. For instance, where I lived on Sheridan Cassern, a lot of the buildings have been torn down and now is a park. Flat Cassern, a lot of the buildings have been torn down uh, and apartments and businesses. So that kind of keeps me from not going back. I want to remember like it was. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want or think about joining the military, I would say go for it. It's an experience you'll not regret. People say, oh, I can't go in because they're always telling me what to do. Well, in basic, yes. But that's only eight weeks or so of basic, and then you have the rest of your career. Mm-hmm. Yes, you still be told to do something, but not like you are in basic. When to get up, when to go to bed, do this, do that. You know. I enjoyed it very much. I am a shy person when it comes to meeting new people, but if I found out that other person is a veteran, be it male or female, I have no problem talking to them. 
mm-hmm. helped me grow up. When I was on the last part of my enlistment, I noticed the younger privates, PFCs coming in, were very immature. And I thought to myself, did I act like that? But within three, three and a half years, I extended one time for six months. Thought, I hope not, but probably was. And that's just how it matured me. Mm-hmm. And you learn responsibility, you learn teamwork, you learn to be on time. There's just so many advantages. Plus schooling, I got my two-year degree. I did not go on to my last two years. I did not want to. Loved it, especially if you can get an overseas tour. That's even better. Mm-hmm. That That's something I wish that we had today was mandatory enlistments, enlistments for men and women. Two years. It wouldn't hurt anybody to do that. Israel has it. So does a lot of other countries. You did your time in the Army, mm-hmm. but you also retired from the VA. So you really gave the government how many years of your life? I Actually, I did a year in reserves after I got out. I did a year in reserves. Not the Guard, but the reserves. And I had to travel to Austin, Texas to uh, do my one week in a month and then two weeks out of the year. I would say I have 33 years. Of course, I had a break or two in, in, you know, in between, but all in all, 32 years of working for the government. I only had two civilian jobs. Working at Pomida, I remember that one. I worked at Pomida, which is now a car lot. The year that I was out of high school in between graduating and going to the service, I worked at um, a factory that made big blocks of foam. And from that foam, we cut ceiling tiles, we cut parts for bridges, marinas, anything that they could use. And that's the only two civilian jobs I've had. I, again, truly appreciate you sitting down and and talking to me about this. And I will probably keep this recording forever and ever and ever. (laughs) Thank you, sweetie. (laughs) But thank you so much for your service. I appreciate it, Mom. Anytime. And I love you. I love you, too. And I will have you on my show at any time that you want. Okay. I'll hold you to that. You're you're welcome back. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking your time out to join me today and listening. Tomorrow for part two on the special edition for Honoring Women Veterans, I will have Angela in studio with me, and I look forward to sharing her story with all of you. And have a great rest of your day. We'll talk again tomorrow.